Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 25. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's pray. Father, teach us what we need to know and give us the appetite for the obedience appropriate, Father, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And here we are at the end of the book of Hebrews, the final sermon. Next week, we'll move into four weeks related to Advent and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh, and then we'll move on a move into a book to be determined after the first of the year. Uh, we're leaning towards going to a gospel at this moment, so uh, I'm not sure which one. I have an idea, but uh, we'll make that decision hopefully this week. So here we come to the end of the book of Hebrews, and it ends with a benediction, which simply means something like a, a good word. It's a prayer to God on behalf of the readers or the listeners. When we do a benediction at the end of the service, it's, it's a prayer to God on behalf of you, um, behalf of the hearers. It's a good word on behalf, and it's being offered to God. So here we come to the benediction in the book of Hebrews, and what struck me, I don't know if it strikes you, maybe because I'm uh, attentive to these kind of things, but his phrase in there, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. I don't know how that strikes you. It, it struck me funny. I love how he says briefly. If this is briefly, then I don't know what you would call my exhortations. A blink, uh, a dot. I, I, I'm thinking my exhortations shorter than his, if you're not catching up on what I'm saying. Uh, he says briefly, and yet many of us have a hard time handling more than 144 characters, a tweet or maybe a blog or an article at best. But 13 chapters later, rich theology, scathing rebukes, soft encouragements, strong admonishments, and thanks for listening to my brief words. There you go. But he doesn't just say, thank you for, for hearing me out. He says to bear with. Bear with my exhortation. Bearing, meaning the idea of like enduring through. If you take bearing with in the context, there's a sense of bearing through or engaging with to the end. He's not saying, listen, this is, it would be easy for us to read it this way. Ah, 
just make sure you heard my word. Just make sure you listened. Just make sure you got it in your head. He's saying way more than that when he says, bear with my exhortation. He's saying, hear them, yes. Hear the words that I just said. But he's also saying, don't run from them. Don't shy away from them. Don't justify them away. Don't wimp out. Hear them. Trust them. Do them. Practice them. Make it your way of life. Bear with my exhortation. If you don't see where that's from the context, look just a few words earlier where he says, I appeal to you, brothers. See, he's, he's making an appeal to us to bear with. He's not making an appeal for you to just simply make note of what he said. He's making an appeal that you would hear it and do something with it. I appeal to you, brothers, hear my words and do them. Don't be like the man in James, James chapter 1, 22 through 24. He's, James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks and... Well, side note here. Having gone out uh, shopping the past few days, have you seen anyone that looks this way? Like they looked into a mirror and then... Or maybe they didn't look at a mirror and... Went on out anyways? Come on, it was a joke. Y'all killing me. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's not a joke. It's a reality that I was meant to make fun of. Looks intently at his natural face in a mirror and then walks away, forgets what he looks like. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So the author of Hebrews is, is saying, I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my encouragement. Bear with my words. Don't be like this person who hears the words and then walks away and forgets what I just said. Or the person who looks into a mirror and walks away and forgets what they looked like. My appeal to you, church, is the same. Hear the exhortations and do them. You should be, if you've been doing this all along, church, you, personally, you should be able to look back over the past few months in the book of Hebrews and give an account for clear, evidenced growth and change that is a direct result of the book of Hebrews. I'm not saying you, should, you have to have 10 examples or 20 examples, but there has to be something that you can point back to in the book of Hebrews where you're like, because of that, this change has happened in my life. Could it be an emotional change, a physical change, a spiritual change, hopefully all of the above. If that's the case, then you are bearing with the exhortation. You're hearing and doing likewise. If not, if not, if you cannot do that, then you're, I'm going to introduce you to a new word, you're a ninny at best, 
or you're lost at worst. But for those who have bore with the exhortation, praise God for the changes that have happened in your life. Praise God for increased faith. Praise God for greater joy and obedience and greater ways in which you are walking in obedience. Praise God for perseverance and faith. And praise God for the myriad of other steps towards holiness that have been taken in your life and the life of others. Praise God for those things. He says, bear with, I I appeal to you brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Making a, a broad comment here over the book of Hebrews, and then kind of drilling down in. The author's primary goal for the book of Hebrews has been this perseverance of faith in God's people, especially amidst adverse conditions, unfavorable circumstances. And what's it look like to persevere during that? And how will you persevere in faith in those circumstances? It's kind of the primary thrust of the book of Hebrews, that we would finish to the end Again, through certain adverse trials that we would complete the race, not stopping, not swerving to the left or to the right. And yet, once again, in the book of Hebrews, we come into this, the book of Hebrews and and, and come into even this moment with the idea of faith and works that oftentimes seem to be mortal enemies in our own walk. Meaning, how do they fit together? How do I think about faith and works? Yes, we would agree, faith plus works is not salvation. We would all agree on that. Yet every day, our faith and works oftentimes look like a jumbled mess. For example... Some of us look to our works and feel worthless because we think our works can and should save us. Some of us pay no attention to our works because you think that all that matters is some sort of mental agreement with what God has said. And some of you bounce in and out of these before you get dressed. But look what we find the author of Hebrews saying here in his closing words. Now may the God of peace, starting verse 20, the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, verse 21, equip you. So may that God equip you with everything good that you may do his will. May he equip you with everything good that you may go do all the works that Ephesians says God has prepared beforehand for us to do, Ephesians 2. The author has been writing that we would persevere in faith, and yet what seems to be a package deal over and over and over again, and once again here in the closing, is the idea of faith and works, a combined reality, two sides of the same coin, never separated. 
Just like it is with Jesus in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not only that, but Matthew 7, 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So if the thrust is persevering in faith, why do we find the author continually bringing up faith and works? Faith and works. And unfortunately, what we've done is we've separated those things so heavily so as to make them completely separate entities that really never touch each other. But they're a package deal. The first point I want you to see for today is that a persevering faith looks like doing God's will. A persevering faith looks like doing God's will. A persevering faith does not look like just some intangible, untouchable, mental ascent or some flighty emotional experience that we tend to call faith. Yes, faith is, in a sense, intangible, untouchable. But it always has the other side of the coin. It always has the look of doing God's will. That's why he can say all these grand things about this bloody covenant and then say, and yet you have stuff to do. Bloody covenant. And we have stuff to do. There doesn't seem to be this false dichotomy or this separation because unfortunately, when you make a false dichotomy, then you can make the two war against each other. But there is no war against each other when it comes to faith and works. They, because they should have never been separated as two separate entities. At least not as we have separated them. They always go together. The internal, the external, these are inseparable. You cannot pull them apart. Again, they are so connected that in the author's final words encouraging the people to persevere in faith and not walk away from the faith, he can say something like, may God equip you with everything good that you may do his will. And may God work in you and give you everything necessary to live a life of obedience. May God give you everything so that doing God's will is simply the normal thing in your life. It's the old hat. It's just what we do. We know nothing other. And that call, that admonishment, is all connected to the bloody covenant we find in Christ. More on that in the second point. Now, I know we harp on this seemingly frequently, this idea of legalism. But legalism is a chief problem in our day. Let me define for you what I mean. Legalism is not caring deeply about God's standards and obedience to them. That is not legalism. Legalism is an attempt 
at using God's standards or your own standards, or the combination thereof, to make yourself right with God, or righteous, or make others to be right with you, or you to be right with them. That's a long definition. Legalism is an attempt at using God's standards or your own standards to make yourself right with God or make others to be right with you or you with them. That would be legalism. Now, why does this get confused with someone who cares about God's standards? The reason I think it gets confused with someone who cares about God's standards is that the legalist, the true legalist, most often writes standards above and beyond God's. So they look religious. Their standards look Christian. They seem plausible and reasonable. But you must look carefully. Is the law, you have to have two questions. Is the law keeping about proving themselves to God or others? And two, is the law actually God's law? Right? Those two things will clue you into legalism. Usually, someone trying to prove themselves to God and others isn't doing so by keeping God's actual law. It's usually by creating their own in addition to. Why? Because it's easier to keep your law than it is to keep God's laws. Why, why all of that? Because he's talking about God equipping you to do works. And we bring into that all of that baggage and misunderstanding about works and law and legalism and all that junk. And because the author understands the connectedness of faith and works, he has no problem saying God's beautiful covenant bought by the blood of Christ will result in God equipping you to be obedient in everything God has commanded. In his mind, there is no trouble here. In part, because he has spent 13 chapters, briefly, <laughs> telling us why. He's saying you can't hold anything in your hands and walk up and sacrifice it. So he's saying your works that you do, you can't hold those in your hands and take them to Jesus and say, see, I should have a good day now because I did all the things you told me to do. God, you should, you should make me righteous because I've done everything you told me to do. The only thing we carry in our hands to the cross is the sin that necessitates, necessitates our going. And is there that the only thing that washes us clean is the blood of Jesus. But that faith always has godly works. You see, not empty works, 
Works that are done to save you, works done to make you feel righteous, works done to make you feel good about yourself, works done to make you feel right with God. Like the lamb, you cannot place your hand on those works. They cannot atone sufficiently for your sin. The works must come from faith in God. Faith in what he has said and what he has done. <laughs> I'm on this uh, uh, Facebook group. It drives me nuts, honestly. Um, I'm on there for multiple reasons. I, I do think there's some value. But it's on this reformed parenting group. And I'm shaking my head, seriously, because it does frustrate me. Um, but one of the things that often comes up is my child's being disobedient. What should I do? And I'm like, you should spank them. And I feel like a broken drum, like a, like a broken record. Um, you should spank them. And sometimes that's just all I put. You should spank them. I'm, I'm probably getting known as that guy. But why? Because God says so. It's just really that simple. Why do we have to have a further conversation about this? And I hate it when someone says, oh, that's a good idea. No, it's not a good idea. It's the idea. But why? It's works done in faith. I believe what God has said. This is good. So I'm going to do it. So not empty works on one hand, but not dead faith on the other. A faith instead that is real and alive will do God's will. Now here's the the nail I want to drive in for the moment, though. There's not a one of us that wouldn't agree with what I just said. Certainly, faith that is real is alive and will do God's will. But let me ask you a couple distinct dis, um, questions to bring distinction. What about those who don't care to know more of God's will? They have dead faith. How about those who are stuck on the knowing of, of his will? I'm just asking the same question a different way. Those who are stuck on the knowing of his will that they learned five years ago or five decades ago. There's likely a dead faith. So not empty works, not dead faith, but faith-fueled works shows us a faith that's alive. Now, notice here in this passage that God is the one who does the equipping. So let's just think about this for a few moments. God equips. How does he equip? Uh, at, at the risk of stating the obvious, he does this through the Bible. He does this through the Holy Spirit. He does this through the local church, not one or the other, but all. Make sure you caught that last phrase. What a basic thing to say in your final words. But they and we need to hear this. God equips. Mom and dad, God equips you to carry out his will with your kids. Husband, wife, God equips you to do the will of God with your spouse. And God has established his means of equipping. We know this outside of this passage. 
That God does this through his Bible in combination with his spirit and the local church and its leaders. Hebrews has talked about all of this already. So one implication of this is who gets the credit if God equips us and we go do the work, who's the one that gets the credit ultimately for the work that we do? The one who's doing the equipping, God. That doesn't mean that you and I sit around and he magically infuses the equipping. It's the same with faith. We don't just sit around and he magically throws faith in our minds. We have no right to just blame God and say, well, he hasn't equipped me. God does the equipping, but he works through our humble obedience in doing so. We humble ourselves and move towards him. He equips, he's gracious. It says that he equips with, with everything good. With everything good. Everything that is, that, is, that is for our good. Everything that is true and beautiful and right. Everything that is needed is the implication of this everything good. Because it's for what? For doing his will. So he's giving you everything good for doing his will. So he's giving you what is needed. Listen, Christian, you should be greatly encouraged when it comes into a hard moment. I need to do his will. For some of you, in that moment, you need to stop, take a deep breath, and say, God has equipped me with everything good for me to do this. All the resources I need. I would encourage you, don't pigeonhole what is quote-unquote good. Just because it doesn't meet your preference or definition of good doesn't mean it doesn't fit God's definition of good. Right? That, that would be like all the discipline language that we talked about in Hebrews, that it's for our good, that a loving parent disciplines us. Well, none of us are like, ooh, this is great. How much fun am I having with this trial? You know? like, but that's God equipping you with good. It's good for you. That's why I'm saying, don't, don't be like, when you're looking for how is God equipping me with everything good, and you have this very small definition of what is good, then you're probably going to be, you're either going to miss what God's actually doing, or you're going to be very disappointed or discouraged. But God gives it all. You know, uh, an implication here too is that God is not stingy. I don't know how many of us consider God stingy at this point, but God is not stingy when it comes to giving his children good. God gives what's necessary, nothing more and nothing less. He does the equipping. Next, we do his will. See how that works? He does the equipping. We do his will. What an amazing joy. He does the equipping. We get to do his will. He enables us to go do what he's called us to do. Someone equipped will seek his will. There's a necessary implication. Someone equipped will seek his will. Well, like we'll do his will, but you got to know his will before you do his will. That's my point. You seek his will. Now be careful here. 
we tend to turn doing God's will into a hunt for guidance and all sorts of goofy things. Well, it's just God's will that we stop having any more kids. Well, it's just God's will that I take this job over here. Well, I know it's just God's will that I buy this house. Wink, wink. Well, it's just God's will that I have this conversation with this person, or I do this, or I do that, or I do that. Maybe. And I'm not saying you shouldn't seek like God's will in that moment, like for that thing. But maybe that's his will. But what I oftentimes find is people caught up in seeking God's will in those kinds of situations to the neglect of spending time discovering God's will from God's word that is clear and objective. We get caught up in making this decision over here, this decision over there, and, 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 and certainly there's decisions to be made all the time. But it's really, well, you know, does God just want me to go left or does he want me to go right? I don't know. Choose one. And that's the one he wanted you to go down. All while neglecting knowing what can be known clearly from his word. So this is, my, this is my point. In this passage, don't hear the person's equipped to go do God's, word, do God's will and think he's primarily talking about all those subjective experiences where you're trying to figure out, do I go left or do I go right? That wouldn't fit the context of Hebrews. The context of Hebrews is knowing the will of God from his word. That's the context of Hebrews. That's the will he is at least primarily, if not exclusively, talking about. That you would know and do his will from his word. And God has equipped you with everything good to do so. Things from his word like how to be a godly husband, parent, child, a faithful grandparent, a faithful churchman, how to interact with the government, how to steward time and resources like money, the rightful place of emotions, those kinds of things. The Bible gives us very clear guidance for us to know that we would be equipped to do His will. There's so much of God's will to learn that He has clearly spelled out in the Scriptures that to spend your time figuring out many of the other things that oftentimes simply are a gut feeling might be foolishness. Just be careful. I'm not saying turn all those other decisions into frivolous decisions. That's I'm not saying get a coin and flip it. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying it's, some, we, it's, it's really easy to get lost in that world. 
and neglect knowing the word and knowing his will from the word. Someone equipped will seek his will. Someone equipped will do his will. Maybe this should be able to go without being said, but if you're a child of God, you will be equipped and you will do his will. That doesn't mean you won't do it without sin or failure or mistake, but you will walk towards his will. And it says in this passage that this is pleasing to him. God equips you with everything that you may do his will. He says, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. I mean, what a gift. I don't know if you think about it that way, but you should. What a gift that he would orchestrate this bloody covenant Then out of that and through that, he would equip us to do his will. And that package is pleasing to him. What a gift. What a gift. It's a praise unto his name because it proclaims to the world that God is true and what he has said is true. And again, what a wonderful deal, a gift that we get to be a part of. When you pray at breakfast, maybe you should say something like, God, thank you for the equipping you have done in my life and the will of yours that I get to do today. And praise God that it will be pleasing to you should I choose to walk faithfully in it. Thank you for this gift today of equipping and faithful walking that is ahead of me. Now, all of this hinges on the point of this bloody covenant. You see, it's only by following Christ that you can receive the ministry of the Lord Christ. To walk with Jesus is to experience a spiritual resurrection that anticipates the rising of the dead unto life on the day that Christ comes. You see, a persevering faith is dependent on God's covenantal work. A persevering faith, again, two sides of that coin, faith works is dependent on God's covenantal work. Back to verse 20. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, so on and so forth. To him to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So what we see here is that all of that blessing that I just described, faith and works, God doing the equipping, you and I getting to enjoy that, all of that only comes through Christ. Every spiritual blessing comes only through Christ. You see that? He's working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, comma, through Jesus Christ. Christ. All that is good for us 
all that is glorifying to God in us comes to us through and only through Jesus Christ. If you believe that and work out your faith and works believing that, then by God's grace, you're not a legalist. All that is good for us, all that is glorifying to God in us comes to us through Jesus Christ. It doesn't come through our fleshly attempts at righteousness. It doesn't come just because we were born. It doesn't come because we are simply, quote unquote, good people. It comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. But don't miss this. The blessings of this, the equipping, the doing his will, comes only for those who are part of the flock. Are only come from those who call him the great shepherd. Practically, here's what he means. Let's just let Jesus say it. John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, Right? Like, this would have been those coming out of, like, the legalist stuff of their day, right? The Jews that had believed him. He says this to them. You know, if you just have this feeling of faith and, do, and be very gracious, you'll be my follower, right? Is that what he says to them? He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and truth will set you free. You know my word, and you have faith in it. If you abide in it. Abide means both things. Knowing it, and hanging on to it. Knowing it, staking your life on it. You're truly my disciples. And he says, only then will you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus had no problem telling these legalistically prone people that you must know my word. You must do it. It's only through this path that comes all the blessings of this covenant this covenant that God worked everything through. This covenant, specifically here that, that he's talking about, is the covenant between the Father and the Son. A covenant made in eternity past between the Father and the Son. A covenant that the Father charged the Son with. I mean, a covenant that had conditions that he said, Jesus, you're going to go do this. That's why Jesus in John 17 says to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That's what Jesus is referring to in John 17. That's the covenant, this charging of work for Jesus to do. That's this eternal covenant, by the blood of the eternal covenant. 
this covenant of Christ having never existed. I, I'm sorry, never made back up. That's totally wrong. Having never not existed is the right I'm trying to say. Those mean very different things, don't they? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> That's the eternal covenant. The book of Hebrews is soaked in the blood of that eternal covenant. Every page. So then the question is, well, what was the work charged to the Son? What was the work given to the Son? What was the content of the bloody covenant by the blood of the covenant? What was the content of that? I think the best description of that comes from an Old Testament passage in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 11 and 12. Let me read to you from the Old Testament this eternal covenant and its contents. Out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, speaking of Christ, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's the eternal covenant that he's speaking about here in Hebrews that the Father made with the Son. Let me teach you a word and then I'll get into some of the content of that based on Isaiah. The word I want you to learn is imputation. It means to accredit someone with something. Uh, Jeff's used the analogy of him going and running a race and then giving the, the medallion or the award, what's that thing called, around your neck, the medal, there we go, giving the medal to his son and his son walking around as if the winning of the race or the running of the race had been accredited to him, as if he had ran the race as if he had finished. That's imputation. Except when God does it, it's as it's real. So here in this passage it says, he makes many to be accounted righteous. What's he mean? He makes his people to be accredited with Christ's righteousness. He imputes the credit of Christ's righteousness to his people. So if that righteousness was a million dollars, he takes that million and puts the positive million in your account without subtracting a dime from Jesus's, for the record. He imputes Christ's righteousness to you. That's what he means. That many to be accounted, for many to be accredited. And then it says, and he shall bear their iniquities. That's imputation. That Jesus shall be accredited with their negative account. That Jesus will take 
their costly sin, and God will put it upon his back. Makes Christ to be accredited with our sinfulness. You can go read passages like Romans 5, where it talks about through Adam, sin entered the world, and thus the sin nature that is imputed to us from Adam. Yes, we make our own sinful choices, but his sin nature is imputed to us. Now, here's the reality if God cannot impute Adam's sin to us, and that's not right for him to do it, then neither is it right for him to accredit Jesus' righteousness to us either. And do you want that? The work he charged to the Son, we sing of it calling it the double imputation. He gets our righteousness I'm sorry, he gets our sinfulness and we get his righteousness. It's a blood-bought covenant. Why blood? Because simply, because blood represents life. Why life? So why must blood be shed? Why must life die? Because any sin, including the smallest, stood up next to God is infinitely evil. You say, right, 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 what, do you, what, do you, what do you mean? Right? God's, God's holiness knows no bounds. So if you put a, a finite like, sin piece here, I did this sin, even as small as it is, and you measure that up against a holiness that is infinitely holy and good and right, there's no bounds, then it is sinful to that extent. Thus requiring death. That's why blood, blood represents life. Why? Because why, why? You, you take blood from a thing, and you take majority or all of its blood, and what does it do? It dies. Life is in the blood. So we sing things like, there is power, power, wonder-working power, in the what? In the blood of the Lamb. I sound like Jeff, don't I? Look at that. That wasn't even planned. Certainly the blood of Jesus is repulsive to many. Why? Because many don't think they need it. They don't think they need a bloody covenant. Because it is an indictment as well. It's an indictment on our sin. Because it speaks of God's imputing Adam's sin. J.C. Ryle says this, Terribly black must that guilt be for which nothing but the blood of the Son of God could make satisfaction. How terribly black that guilt must be to require such a sacrifice as Jesus. But to those humble, knowing they're in desperate need, say, wash me, Savior, or I die. All of me, as Peter said eventually, Well, then wash all of me, Jesus. He's called here the God of peace. Just to make sure we're understanding him clearly. It's not because he's brought this nice and peaceful earth at this moment, or he's not not brought nice and peacefulness to the earth at this moment. Instead, Jesus even says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. 
That peace on this earth will not happen until all the pagans and their king are thrown into hell. And all of our ongoing sin is eradicated. When that happens, there will be peace. But the peace he's talking about here is a peace that comes with God between him and sinful men that is bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. That's the peace. He is the God of peace. This blood shows us God's power over death. Look at Hebrews, look at verse 20. Now may, God, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, we're reminded that God pushed oxygen back into the bloody veins of Jesus Christ three days after he took his last breath. And in that moment, defeated the greatest foe, death. Why is it the greatest foe? Because we all deserved it. You and I still deserve it apart from Christ. And yet we are reminded here at the end of Hebrews that the bloodiness of the cross also includes the bloodiness of the resurrection. What do I mean by that? The blood pumping full through his body. And lastly, the blood shows us God's immense love for his people. The blood shows us God's incredible, deep, rich, unfathomable love for his people. 1 John 4, 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Do you see that? The love of God, the very love of God is made present with his people. Where? How? That God sent his only son into the world. What's that? Christmas. <laughs> so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the what? The propitiation for our sins. So it's not just that Jesus came into the world that shows us God's love, but it's God sending Jesus into the world where he would die as the substitute for our sins, where he absorbs all the wrath due for your sin and mine. It's in that act that God demonstrates his love for us. It's in the blood of the cross where it's spilt and washes over us that we see the love of God made manifest among us. For God sent him not just to live on this earth, but to spill his blood, the only blood that could absorb the wrath due for all of your sins and mine, and could absorb it all 
in an instant. Like Abraham walking Isaac to the mountain to sacrifice him. Yet in this situation, Jesus is that substitute. The ram, the lamb that dies in our place and through which all spiritual blessings are ours. Through the blood of Jesus, we're forgiven. And it is our faith that is the conduit through which all these blessings of this bloody covenant flow to us. And it is the fruit of this flow that shows itself in doing the Lord's will, the will that he is equipping us to do. If I could conclude with this phrase, perseverance in the faith looks like knowing the Lord, loving the Lord, and obeying the Lord. For we have a bloody covenant and stuff to do. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for the book of Hebrews and the grace that it's been to our church. Father, look around those present and many who are gone this weekend and reminded, reminded of the deep transformations that have happened over many lives and many families and by your grace many generations to come because of the work that you've done through this church as it's walked through the book of Hebrews. But thank you for the grace of your word, for the gift that it is to us. Thank you for, for sending the author and equipping the author to write these words that have been such a blessing to us. May he be shining and enjoying eternal bliss with you at this moment. Father, may we thank him when we see him. Father, may we hear and bear with the words of exhortation. May we be reminded that it is a bloody covenant that has bought and paid for us. And that you're equipping us with everything good to do your will. And that that is a pleasing aroma to your throne. I ask that you would increasingly make this the normal reality in our church. Father, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.